Yes, guys, today we are having another amazing roundtable. And joining me today are a duo of magnificent folklorists, Morgan Daimler and Luke Greensmith. And we are going to be talking uh, about talking <laughs> about words. This episode is about words. Well, one word in particular known as the other F word. A very, very bad word that I am not going to pronounce because we had some technical difficulties during this episode because of the words. So guys, we're going to be talking about the words we use to describe the, you know, them, those guys, the little people, the good neighbors, the sealy whites, you know. Ah, you don't know what I'm talking about, huh? You know, guys, they're most commonly known as the fair folk. Okay, guys, yet another roundtable, and with me today are Morgan Daimler, yet again. Hello, Morgan. Hello. <laughs> and Luke Greensmith, yet again. Hello, I think this is my third time on Tracing Owls. Yes, and for Morgan as my well. third too, lucky number three. <laughs> Synchronicity. <laughs> and there's three of us today, and we're going to be talking today about words. We're going to be talking about the F words, or rather... The other F word, which is equally problematic. And I think I already fucked it up because I realized there are many bad F words in the English language. But what we're talking about today, obviously, is fairies. So, uh, Luke, can you maybe introduce yourself if people don't know who you are? Probably not. So let's go. Um, <laughs> Luke Greensmith. I'm a folklorist. I'm a horror writer and filmmaker and just a general menace in the community who gets around the place. And for whatever reason, I keep bumping up against the usage of furry and just stories going slightly wrong when it comes to actual cultural preservation versus just everything being thrown in the blender and then people filling in the gaps. I actually want to ask you, do you, do you ever feel offended how people people use the word folklorist i could see that as another f word huh, it definitely could be like um i think people are more offended that i take on the title because i'm not from academia i'm very much self-taught and mostly come at it from the angle of stories but i'm mm -hmm. also technically a professional folklorist and researcher so i've managed to sneak in the back door somewhere no one had it locked up tight enough yes and this is why i thought it was perfect to have you and morgan timler on this round table morgan uh can you introduce yourself and from what we know you are also an independent uh, researcher. Yes, um, I think Luke and I sound like we have a lot in common, actually. I'm terrible at introducing myself, but uh, Morgan Daimler, I have been studying Irish mythology and folklore for something like the last 25 years. I would also describe myself as a, an amateur uh, folklorist uh, in the sense that I don't have a degree. I did not go to school for it. I have presented at conferences and I've presented for the Folklore Society, so I'm in this weird liminal folklorist zone, I think. But it's, it's very important to me to preserve particularly the Irish material is where my main focus is. But mm -hmm. um, I've also uh, written about the intersection of modern fiction and uh, folklore, and particularly relating to fairies in the, the widest possible sense of that term. So that's sort of where I'm coming from. And how much does the F word offend you? Because from what I see, you have so many books that
utilize the word in the title. I was now reading uh, Fairy's The Guide to the Celtic Fair Folk, and you start the book talking about the use of the word fairy. Yeah, I'm, I'm going to sound like an enormous hypocrite right off the bat, so that's always <laughs> awesome. I actually don't use it in my, my personal life. I use the euphemisms, the Namaha, the, the good folk, things like that. But I very early on ran into a problem where if I'm not using the term that the majority of people are familiar with, then it puts me in a position where I have to backtrack and, and spend quite a bit of time explaining things. So particularly for the material that I publish, I tend to use the, the commonly used term uh, the F word as it is, um, just because it reaches the widest audience. And then sort of once that audience is there, <clears throat> we get into the the idea that you really shouldn't call them that. <laughs> They don't like it. Wow. Yes, there is so much to unpack here. Just how we are using the word, like I was pondering now by using the word, the term fairy tale, you know, to refer to something that is uh, most definitely not real. You know, that's the way we use the term now. We are solidifying this idea that fairies are not real and that's exactly what's offending them. It's really weird because it's one of the most frustrating things about the word is how useful it is. Yeah. <laughs> if there was other usage, we'd be fine, but we've got to go like, okay, we're going to talk about fairies and why you shouldn't call them fairies but you've got to use the but like it's such an easy <laughs> useful word to lay down the groundwork and like people know what you're going to talk about which makes it all the more annoying mm-hmm. yes i 100 agree and there's there's a current trend right now to use the word fae instead of fairy and that frustrates me because they're basically synonyms as i'm sure luke is aware but for the rest of the audience fae would be the french word that fairy originally came from from the french into the english uh so you're just sort of replacing one word with the exact same word in a slightly different form. Yeah, and the whole root etymology of it is about the erasure of the original folklore, which was to tie it all in with like classical literature. So it's to tie it all in with like Greek and Latin classics and it's to do with the fates and there are all these nature spirits. And that is a very poor reflection of what the original uninvaded folklore was. Yeah, yeah, for sure. And I think um, when you add into that, the complications that we get coming out of the Victorian era where fairies were very strongly rewritten in the the popular culture then you add a whole other layer of complication you know usually when i initially start talking about fairies i have to start by saying you know if you're imagining twee little winged um, children among flowers then that's that's really not what we're talking about with the bulk of the the folklore that's out there bonus points for irony that if you saw a twee little winged sprite if it actually was an encounter with anything from the original folklore it'd be a trickster luring you in to do something horrible to you yep For sure. <laughs> well, actually, Morgan and I talked twice already about modern fairy sightings and how they seem to reflect the modern bastardized interpretation. So it is like oh. the phenomenon itself, if you believe in it, kind of changes through history I've alongside got us. a great one to talk about then. And I, mm-hmm. um, I wonder if Morgan will see the disaster coming on this one. It was um, like a guest spot for like the presenters on the Ghost Story Guys. That's what one podcast I research on. And they went on Booze and Bourbon. And they did furries is a bit of a jab at them because they like my producer brennan who's a presenter on ghost story guys he doesn't like to dealing with them he doesn't like saying the name he doesn't especially has learned not to use the um, the f word because usually some sort of malfunction will follow on his equipment but they got called on they brennan got given a story and it was about like this uh, little folk with a red hat and they were talking about how oh it's like a gnome but it was like it was violent and it was breaking stuff and for the entire thing i was just face palming going this is a red cap story yeah. Why are you doing this to yourself? <laughs> yeah, that that's 
an interesting choice <laughs> to go with. <laughs> it's just, it's purely ignorance. But sorry, Morgan, I just stumbled you. Then you like, you want to give us some information on that side of things? No, I was going to say it's funny you mentioned the, the technological stuff because I've sort of gotten it worked out at this point. But for the longest time, whenever I would do anything like this, discussing this subject in a technological form, I would have constant tech problems and issues. So I'm glad to know I'm not the only one. <laughs> we actually had it the first time we recorded, like for 15 or 20 minutes. <laughs> yep. I get away with the fur folk. I don't know if it's just proximity because I'm Liverpool area and there might just be enough mingling going on there. What did cause me a massive cropper last year was when I thought it was a great idea to read out a real life curse that was discovered in a wall. And that completely, that episode oh. of my audio was just wrecked. <laughs> <laughs> So yes, not that, saying I that, am a believer, but that is one heck of a coincidence. You guys are opening up a big can of worms for my episode <laughs> now, and we just started. <laughs> the important thing is that we're okay, Vuk. You have fun with this. <laughs> but I, I'm also thinking like why we are using the F word so much is because it is not offending us. It is offending them. And most people who don't believe in them then don't care to their detriment, unfortunately. <laughs> Yeah, I, I think there's definitely a strong sort of delineation between the people who find the, the subject entertaining or interesting, but don't really believe in it or believe in it as very strongly that post-Victorian twee nature spirit sort of thing. And then when you uh, talk to people who, you know, clearly are part of a community or still have the, the older folk beliefs um, and they get much more cautious and, and careful how they approach the subject. There's an ironic amount of it might kind of work because like you always use the euphemisms like calling them a seely white or the good neighbors is you're not supposed to actually mention their names and we may have just completely accidentally insulated culture from disaster by using such a wrong name in some circumstances like unseely comes from the 1800s anything old enough and uh, grumpy enough would completely miss that yeah uh, hopefully <laughs> <laughs> yeah that's, that's an interesting point and you know if we look back at it there's such a fascinating history with the euphemisms. I had attended a lecture with Ronald Hutton where he brought up the point that, uh, you know, he believes that fairy originally came into English as a euphemism, as a term that could be used for elves, for alpha, because that was really what was in place in the, the Anglo-Saxon, you know, prior to it moving into sort of early English, um, Old English, and Middle English. And um, the idea that we might have initially started referring to them as fairies to avoid saying elf. And then we get into this idea where a fairy becomes popular enough, well, then that's what you don't want to say. And then yeah, it's whatever's calling their attention is what's wrong. Yeah, yeah. And we see that in the Irish too, where, you know, it is, you're not supposed to say the F word uh, there, but you're also not supposed to say she, um, a she. Um, and that's an older folk belief. And that has kind of faded out a little bit where you don't see see as many uh, younger people today that are aware that you're not supposed to say she. And so that people will use she instead of fairy when, you know, 50, 60 years ago, both would have been avoided. That is an odd one as well. You've got, I use a or she as a more respectful term, but again, you're looking at the linguistic shift. And we're talking like over a wide period here because uh, what fairy came in circa 1300, I think I've seen it noted as, mm -hmm. and it was a whole consequence of the um, Norman invasion going back to 1066 and the erasure of culture and how we ended up with English being such a terrible, terrible language, basically anything. It's an absolute mess, yes. There's, there's harsher words for what the English language is, but let's stick with mess. <laughs> 
Okay, so b- back to the etymology. Uh, so we have stated that fairy comes from fay, a French term. And I think I read that it originally me- meant a woman that practices magic. Oh, no, I was going to say in the French, as, as you, Luke, had mentioned earlier, coming into that idea of sort of bringing that classical lens, the idea of the fates. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's very much a attempt to make a, a like a legend of everything. It's like a really early, the golden bow trying to explain everything in one neat little pot that explains everything away i mean isn't that how we are still using the term fairy now like we can talk about the tokolosha of africa and refer to them as fairies or the duendes of spanish-speaking cultures and i even had uh, a mexican descendant person on my show talking about duendes and they referred to duendes as fairies that feels more like a cultural accident it's like referring to a fox as kind of a dog but also a bit like a cat it's descriptive but it's not necessarily correct yeah yeah it's it's a problem we see a lot in translation because you know if you you have sort of two choices when you're translating. You can just give the term as it is in the, the original language and culture, but then the audience from the second culture is going to have absolutely no context for it. They're not going to know what it is. So what people tend to do then is to choose the closest equivalent. And a lot of times those equivalents are really, really not accurate. <laughs> They're just very, like you were saying with the, you know, calling a fox a sort of dog cat. So I think we run into this issue where, you know, you'll see people coming in from another culture, another language, who will use the term fairy because it's the closest English language term. Um, but a lot of times it loses so much nuance um, to what we're actually talking about. Yeah, we do hit the issue there of like uh, translation versus localization yeah. and just getting the meaning across. And it feels like that with the information age, we're getting a lot better at that. When you look at, well, when I, weirdos like me look at um, like horror movies that came over from Japan, a while ago you'll get like quite a hodgepodge of where yokai are being called goblins mm-hmm. which almost kind of works and it helps you to understand it as like a mental shortcut but it's not what's true to the local folklore yeah and Sure. The usage of folklore and of Oni, it's all kind of like getting actually used now as people are more getting involved with the culture and taking on more cultural notes. The localization versus translation, they're going quite well. Like if you talk to anime nerds, they know what a Shinigami is. You don't need to like say a deaf god and be vaguely correct. You actually can use the words. Yeah. Um, and I, I would like to see us, my, myself, my personal dream for culture, to move forward into that sort of a place where we have that cross cultural understanding because otherwise I think we are sort of at risk of just losing all of that nuance and you know if you call something a fairy you have that such a strong mental image in western culture most people of what that means and a lot of times that's really not even close to what we're talking about even in western European folktales you know if, if you compare like the Aishi to the fairies which would be the English term that's used for them but they're completely not like anything you're going to be expecting if you're expecting you know English folk belief. Now, I have a question here regarding the etymology and origin of the word. So somewhere I read that fairy was originally used to either refer to magic as an act or to refer to a place. And then just later became associated with entities. And we see this with uh, she. She are the burial mounds, but the a she are the 
people from the fairy tales. So what caused this shift of using a word that refers to an act or a place to start referring to entities? Well, the, the she um, are not burial mounds specifically, but, but fairy mounds, otherworldly hills, that sort of thing. Yeah, it uh, when it was in the French, it was used for enchantment and women who were seen as enchanting, that, that idea of connecting them to the fates, women who could use magic to influence uh, people's destinies, that sort of thing. Um, when it gets brought over into English, it was initially used as a descriptive term, as an adjective for things that were magical or had an enchanting kind of nature. Um, and then it became something that was applied to the place that those beings were thought to come from, hence the land of fairy. And then sort of circled back around on itself, you know, by the 14th, 15th century was being used for those beings themselves. So it sort of started out as an adjective for magical enchanting mm-hmm. um, things. It was applied to humans um, initially as well, I should say. Now, I, I cannot help but notice the parallel with Hades from Greek mythology. Hades is used to refer to the god, but also the underworld as a place. You do need to watch out where they're coming in. Um, Hades and Hades does feel like a bit of a different thing, especially because once you get into what the underworld is, they've all got their own names, like Tartarus is a place within the underworld. But also when you look at, just like to circle back around to she being referred to as mounts, you've got to watch out wherever she pops up. So that's whether S with the accented I, S I D H E, S I T H if it's Gallic. It's usually just a broad reference to the other world or of the other world. Okay, Mor- Morgan, can we hear you? <laughs> yeah, that was okay. a fun little tech malfunction. Mm-hmm. Uh, everything went dark for a moment, but I'm back. We used the F uh, word. <laughs> <laughs> I used it one time too many. Yeah, she in the in the oldest Irish definitely has that that connotation of the the other world uh, in the broad sense. Um, and there's a lot of debate on the etymology. No one's 100 percent sure where it originally came from, although there's theories. And then the same thing; it became used as an adjective, and then eventually kind of circled back around. Um, the idea of just saying she to mean the the people of the the otherworldly hills is fairly modern, sort of modern slang. Uh, in the older uh, would have been um, is she or um, is she depending on which Irish we're talking you know in in Irish just in general you would say um, shiog or shioga for the the good folk I'm not saying the f word again I don't want my computer to crash <laughs> we've overdone the f word we're back to good neighbors I have I, I used up my quota and speaking of the euphemisms like good neighbors good folk I read in your book Morgan that it is believed that it started to be used to kind of remind the good folk of their goodness in a way to ensure that they will not do something bad to you. Yeah, yeah, it's, it's a true euphemism um, in that sense. It's something that you're using that you're not necessarily describing them. <laughs> you know, it's not meant to be taken as a, a description of what they actually are, so much as that you're trying to say something that's positive, um, or if they were around and heard you say it, they, they wouldn't be angry about it. And the use of the euphemisms goes back, uh, I believe, for the Welsh, we have evidence from the 12th century, English in the 14th, and that would be people writing in Latin um, using um, popular pulchrum, uh, fair folk in Latin. Um, and I apologize, my Latin is horrible when I try to say it. And um, in the Irish, of course, we have it going back uh, to the ninth century in writing and probably previous to that in, in oral sources. It's very hard to keep track of this because there's a whole point where everything is murky and it was all passed down as oral history. And you get to weird points where in different regions meaning different things. So like every possible theory may in one particular place be correct. And the whole thing is then 
started glomming together as we start codifying and writing all this down, trying to record it better. Yep, definitely. And of course, you know, in the Irish, the written material gets really complicated because it's primarily things that were recorded by um, monks and Christian scribes. And so we kind of have to take with a grain of salt. We lost so much culture that way, but also it was the only preservation of the culture in some ways, yep. with the monks just being basically deranged. It's like we've got one good poem about all of the actual Norse culture that we try and make everything else fit around now. And that was yep. from a bored monk. <laughs> I mean, board monks have contributed a lot to, to preserving history, I think. But yeah, it, it definitely complicates the wider picture. Okay, I can't help but have this uh, image in my head of Noah's Ark. And you know how uh, Noah got a female and a male member of every animal species to get on his ark to pres preserve the species, you know, before the flood. So it's like you are preserving this culture, but you are cherry picking only a few parts of the culture and we are losing all this diversity and nuance, but it is unnecessary necessity because otherwise the culture would have been wiped out completely and lost to history. What's yeah. coming, move it or lose it. Yeah. Well, and I think that continues to be a problem today, too. Um, I was talking to a friend of mine uh, who lives in Wales, and they were talking about how, you know, the, the written material we have for Welsh good folk belief, a lot of it is very generic, and you're going to find very different beliefs regionally if you actually go to Wales to different areas and talk to people about, you know, this mound or that hill or what have you, you're going to hear things that you're not going to find in books because a lot of it just has not been recorded. And there was a sort of hesitancy for people to talk openly about some of these beliefs that prevented some of them from being recorded. Yeah, Wales suffered a lot from Arthurian myth being stamped on it mm -hmm. as part of like the um, cultural update from, again, the Normans taking over. Darn those Normans. <laughs> Yeah, I've got a beef with the Normans. It's a thousand years ago, but I've still got beef. <laughs> That's fair. I, I have beef with the Victorians, so <laughs> I understand. Yeah, like there are some myths that endured purely from cultural, let's call it, gravity. So Wales had the tappers down the mines, Cornwall had the knockers down the mines, and as the miners went over to the New World, they had the Tommy knockers. So weird things do endure in unusual ways, despite all the efforts of anyone to say, no, it should be this instead. Oh yeah, for sure. And I mean, I think even if you look at the, the range of F-word beliefs um, really across all of Western Europe, you know, the, the church at points was pretty dedicated trying to stamp those out because um, they just didn't fit well in with the, the cosmology. And there's something enduring about them that, you know, people just were not willing to, to let go of that belief of those concepts. Yeah, there's a whole hodgepodge when you look at history of how that comes in. So in some places you get really militant of things to stamp things out. And that makes me think of Oliver Cromwell. He hated maypoles because they were giant penises. And the, every time he tried to stamp it out, he'd get people rioting and there'd be actual deaths on both sides as he tried to stamp it out. And you eventually got to the point where you moved past that extreme puritanicalism and the yeah. culture just endured anyway, because that was what people did. Even if they weren't true believers, that was your festival. That was where people mingled and got drunk and it hung in there. Yeah, that was the tradition. Yeah. If we were looking at Ireland, for example, the bonfires, which occur at, at various points during the year, midsummer um, is one, Bialchina is one, Athawan, so May and, and the end of October. You know, those, they're actually seeing a revival now, I should say, before I say they're dying out. But those endured pretty solidly, even in the, the more settled urban areas up through um, the 1940s, 1950s. And then they kind of saw a bit of a period where um, they were dying out. People weren't engaging in the practices anymore. And now we're seeing them again um, in the last uh, 10 years or so, I think, in particular. But, it, you know, they survived, even though they 
they weren't religious practices because they were the traditions. This is like you were saying, Luke, it's what the people did. It's what their parents had done. It's what their grandparents had done. And people are very reluctant to, to give those things up. It's actually kind of devastating because these Celtic bonfire festivals or Gaelic, because they go everywhere, they're the seasonal, they're the seasonal divisions. The full mm-hmm. pagan wheel of the year that came with the neo-paganism revival, uh, it mixed it up with the Anglo-Saxon solstice and equinoxes to make like eight points vaguely equally around the year. Yeah. But the bonfire festivals themselves, they had like an unbroken chain going back to like the Bronze Age that mm-hmm. only got broken like in the start to the middle of the 20th century. And then the revivals kicked in and brought them back. So there was a huge centuries, aeons of tradition, and then like a weird amount of cultural erasure that only temporarily broke the chain and then it's back again. So it feels, I don't know, what's the word? It makes me feel itchy that there was like this 50 to 100 year patch where they finally managed to kill it before it came back. Yeah. And I mean, I'm glad it's coming back. We'll, we'll see. It's sort of in that neonatal revival stage. So we'll see where it goes. But yeah, when you stop and think about it, because we have written references of that going back over a thousand years into the earliest material. So, and those were clearly documenting practices that had been going on for quite a while prior to that. It's a long time. Yeah, it does make me feel very, very uncomfortable that there was this little patch where industrialization managed to finally almost kill it, and I do hope it does endure now. And sometimes it endures in weird ways. So Yule is still working all over Christmas, and plus all the best Yule legends are the Yule monsters that are lurking across Europe. Um, they're really making a comeback, either through pop culture or because people are going cool. Like, I've got a uh, Yule cat Christmas card this Christmas mm-hmm. just going nice. on the shelf that I really love. So it's it's there. Um, Halloween is just unstoppable. Like, it was in it was the christian all hallows eve and it's too fun to die that might be the cultural thing that's how it's surviving it's just too fun to finally die especially in trying to replace it with just being miserable but also uh, capitalism helped quite a lot in uh, keeping halloween alive ironically yeah (laughs) the same industrialization that killed off everything you love is also the reason that these other things are kept alive halloween's an interesting one when you look at it because it just you know as different time periods come in as different things about culture change halloween just kind of adapts (laughs) and keeps rolling Yeah, Halloween doesn't care. Like you say, like you can thank capitalism. You cannot to a point, but there's like a stubborn amount of human nature, whatever monetary system is applied over the top. So yeah, there's people that want to exploit it and get rich of it, but there's also people that are just having fun with the apples from down the bottom of the garden. So yeah. it's layered and it's weird. And again, I do enjoy the fact that it's self-defeating as well, where cultural eraser has fallen foul when money needs making. Okay, but I can't help but notice that maybe this is the reason why the good folks still prevail to the modern time because they have globalized we use the f word now to refer to everything it's an umbrella term now so by using it as an umbrella term we are losing the cultural nuances but we are keeping it still a thing in the modern consciousness yeah i mean it's it's interesting when you look at the good folk because going back all the way to chaucer you know the the 14th century that general area and you see people talking about how the the good folk are leaving or the good folk are gone or you know those are beliefs from their grandparents time but nobody still believes that but that's that's like what every generation says you know a lot of people aren't necessarily willing to jump up and say oh i i do still believe in this i do have these beliefs but they'll talk about how their parents did or their grandparents did and it's it's just something that's always there no matter how much people you know sort of get the the funeral ready for it yeah rumors of the death are somewhat exaggerated (laughs) 
<laughs> yes. But like uh, I see we still use that via using the term fairy tale. It's always a long time ago in a place far, far away and always conveying the sense of nostalgia, the sense of something fantastical that uh, we do not believe in now, but was believed in the past or used to exist. We hit a weird cultural point again there because like we say, well, that was my parents' belief. That was my grandparents' belief. That's not my belief, but I am going to tell my child every single one of these stories and traditions. <laughs> yep, yep. And those are the same people too who will be like, you know, it's I don't believe it, but I'm not going to cut down that fairy tree or I'm not going to go to that fairy fort at night or, you know, take a stone from it or, you know, no matter how much they profess unbelief, there is still that unwillingness to, to cross that line. Okay, I want to ask now, this is something that I have thought about and I'm maybe I'm just naive and dumb, <laughs> but... What are fairy mounds? Because you pointed out it is not burial mounds. So what what are they? Some of them are sometimes. Yeah. What are they used for? I mean, I'm an urban kid, <laughs> born in the 90s, so I didn't, did not know this. Well, stuff. what they're used for now is being left the hell alone. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yes, that's, that's a brilliant way to explain that. Yeah, I mean, when you look at different examples, some of them are um, natural hills. Uh, some Several are quite large. Um, Nachma, for example, which is Finvara's she. Um, fairly significantly sized. You use the word there. <laughs> yeah. I've got to be careful. Um, and some of them are um, Bronze Age or Iron Age sites, locations, various sorts. Um, some of them are cairns, burial mounds. Um, some of them would originally have probably been living spaces, but you know they all sort of are clearly unnatural looking, the smaller ones when you see them. And I think that was where the the initial, you know, this place is not, not normal in the human world. You know, it's a hill, but it's a very strange looking hill. Okay, so it conveys something that that is unnatural, but it is not man-made. Yeah, um, and the, the hawthorn trees are the same, the lone hawthorns. The idea with that is that, you know, if you have a hedgerow of hawthorns, that's not connected to the other crowd, that those are just trees, bushes. But when you have a single hawthorn by itself in a field, because that's that's unnatural, it's not normal. Um, generally, either they're all going to kind of survive and you get a group of them, or none of them are going to survive, particularly with livestock around. So if there's a single one by itself in a field, it's sort of spot lighted as something that is unusual and, and should not necessarily be there and then therefore is associated with the other crowd and believed to be belonging to them. It's something that's not of our contemporary world. It's something that's very much set aside and of its own thing. So it may have originally been like Bronze Age human. It may have been older. It may like, because we do have all kinds of weird stuff lurking around the UK because it's been colonized for so long. And sometimes it's just, it's happened unusually on its own, but it's it's otherness that makes it of the other world and then you just kind of leave it alone yeah it's, it's that sort of being singled out because it's different and unusual mm -hmm. and unique and very rare yeah they there's certain amounts of that like um Iceland has codified laws about not disturbing um, these mounds. I'm avoiding the F word again. Alpha here, yeah. Elf churches. And generally, you'll find that a, these really old sites tend to overlap as heritage sites anyway, so no matter how much a certain politician may want to bulldoze it to make a car park, there will be an ordinance in place. And it's like, no, even if the furries don't do anything to the machines, the locals will just leave it alone. Yeah. there's There's been some interesting stories out of Iceland too with people experiencing like groups of people experiencing phenomena 
related to particularly the, the elf churches um, being uh, damaged or uh, similar. There was a road work where they hadn't touched the stone or moved it, but it was getting covered with dirt and debris as they were kind of building the road. And people in the town that was right next to this um, started hearing things, music and voices and just all sorts of um, audio phenomena. And it was decided it was because the elves were upset because of the, the rock being uh, disrespected, if you will. Um, so they went up and it was all cleared off and returned to its original state and then the phenomena stopped. And there was another case where they were digging a, a well, I believe. And when they started digging, they started having all sorts of problems with the equipment. Um, and again, the men were hearing things. So they stopped and moved to a different location because it was decided that that was someplace that the Alfar did not want them to be. Yeah, like we talk about ordinances protecting these places. Sometimes these places will make it known that they are these places and it's your, t- it's your turn to just leave or face disaster. Yeah, yeah. There's, there's definitely a lot of modern stories about uh, the consequences of messing with places that belong to the other crowd. So I want to ask, like, considering that the good folk are real, do they perceive themselves as fairies or Aishi or how we refer to them? Or are all of these just our own interpretations of who and what they are? Words that we use ourselves, not necessarily words that they consider themselves as. I think that you need to be in the perspective of that they are not us. They are otherworldly and they are their own thing to an extent. Morgan might have better on this because Morgan's got a much deeper dive on the Irish-specific folklore. I think that when we look at the range of material and the different stories and anecdotal accounts and all of that, it seems pretty clear that these beings would probably have their own terms for themselves. And a lot of times if we look at the words that we use, even the F word, it's it's really more of a descriptive term. A she means people of the fairy hills. Uh, Selkie is an old word for seal. Um, the Irish version of Selkie is just wrong which is the Irish word for seal. Um, Those are seal folk. They can shape change between seals and and human looking. And a lot of times if we look at what these beings actually are are called, the name we're using is just a descriptive term. Banshee, fairy woman. Lin and she, the uh, fairy lover. Fairy lover, yep. And I'm trying to think of some not Irish examples. I've got some uh, Irish examples. So we've got like the um, Haga folk over, I think it's Norfolk. It just means hill folk. Mm -hmm. Yep, yep. And a red cap, which you mentioned in your story earlier. I mean, that's literally just a description. <laughs> yeah, like you could vaguely say it's a kind of goblin, but again, we're very we're veering off into here's the wrong answer, so we can put you in the right direction of the right answer. So the red caps are their own weird little malicious thing that yeah. doesn't have it's noteworthy for not having any vulnerability to iron. It actually likes iron. So as you get down to like individual stories of these individual creatures, the whole thing opens up quite widely over what like a simple categorization term would otherwise lead you to believe. Yep. Yep. Well, I often tell people. When when I'm trying to explain what the word, what the F word means, that it's it's sort of like the word animal. It's such a broad generalization. When you look at everything it's been applied to across history, that it, it almost becomes meaningless in a way. It's not going to tell you. If I say I saw one of those, that in, by itself is not going to tell you enough. I would have to tell you more information. It is more like a metaphor than a specific word. In a way. It's yeah. something that we say to convey an idea or a concept or to allude to it. Or to just be wrong. I saw Morgan Tech 
uh, tweeting the other day, like, um, if you start talking about all these conventions, the Winter Court and stuff, it's just someone's come up with a World of Darkness wiki entry. It's not actually the real folklore. Yeah. There's there's a big problem in certain demographics, certain areas, of people who look to, like, role-playing games, uh, Dungeons & Dragons, uh, White Wolf's Changeling game, or, you know, similar sorts of modern fiction, and then take their, their belief from there. And that, I think, complicates this discussion as well, because then we have people that are using terms that are coming from sort of very niche uh, sort of place, but they're not using them in the same way that the people hearing them are going to think they're talking about. Um, yeah, the pop that, culture that version of it is purely the story slash game version of it. It's not the folklore. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, obviously the game version is going to be different from the folklore because it has to work in the game. It has to make sense in the context of whatever system that game is using. Ah, c- kind of like what they did uh, when Christianizing the Celtic speaking cultures. Similar in the sense of using the material. And trying to fit it in into a contemporary cosmology. It, we're just doing the same thing now, but for capitalistic purposes of creating a game universe. It's not just a game universe, though. It's a communal way of speaking and interpreting everything that's there. Mm-hmm. Which is um, so like the way urban fantasy stands now as its own genre. All those aren't genre tropes encompass a lot of the folklore, and it'll just um, cherry pick and take certain ideas to reinterpret them in a way that works in a narrative sense. And it's really hard to find who to blame for that because like the actual fairy tales that were collected were not; they didn't really cross over. They were very specific to each region they picked up. Big people like Tolkien and C.S. Lewis were kind of doing their own thing. And it's only really now where we get past the neo-pagan revival that tried to, like, that probably didn't help to try to bring a lot of stuff together. We then have stuff like Catherine Kerr, Jim Butcher, Patricia Briggs, and they're all using this communal hodgepodge that has narrative weight. It makes sense within itself. It's got internally consistent logic, but then that becomes the common idea of what the F-word encompasses. Oh yeah, the, the number of people that I've run across who either outright cite Jim Butcher or are clearly drawing on him and we'll talk about you know uh, Titania as the queen of the the Seely court or the summer court and Mob as the queen of the winter court or Unseely court you know which is entirely coming from Dresden the Dresden files uh, that's not something we find in folk belief um, sort of outside of that but then you have people um, oftentimes coming from that that sort of neo-pagan demographic who are drawing on that as sort of their primary source material and that becomes then the basis for their belief. It's the allure of a nice, strong, tidy narrative. Yeah. I mean, better that than the gaming, honestly, because the gaming doesn't often make sense outside of the the reality of the game world. Yeah, it's always mechanically um, invested in just having an objective to do with the game, whereas when it comes to storytelling, at least it is storytelling, modern stories still are within their own branch of folklore as far as it goes. It's just not had time to get misinterpreted yet. (laughs) I mean, some of them are getting there. Uh, <laughs> Urban fantasy's been around since the late 1980s, so some of it's starting to, to work into that. Oh, I actually fell for something recently, and then basically I did a December folklore podcast, and I did a section looking at, like, where I tried to interpret, like, Santa through the King of Holly, and then the very next day, Morgan um, tweets, like, if you're doing the King of Holly, Oak, King of Holly dichotomy, that's from Robert Graves' 1948, The White Goddess, and yeah. it's not actually folklore. I'm just looking at it going, I'm glad I'm so story-based, because I get a little 
little bit of a pass as long as the narrative's good enough on this. <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, that's a that's a wonderful example of modern folklore too. It, it does get pitched as ancient. A lot of people will will go on about how this is like the ancient historic Celtic belief in the Oak and the Holly Kings. It, really, it's only been around for whatever it is, 70 years now. But it has such a place, you know, for a lot of people in neo-paganism and outside of neo-paganism as well. It's it's just really taken a hold. Like there's something to it that speaks to people. It feels good. It feels like it makes things make sense. Yeah, yeah, it, it definitely. And I think that is really what makes things enduring, you know, when it, it resonates with people and it makes sense and it helps them make sense of the world around them. This idea that these two kings fight at two points of the year and that's the changing of the seasons, particularly, I think, for us in our more post-industrial world, because a lot of people are not as connected to the sort of day-to-day environmental changes. Um, so those those big points of the year, I think it's a little easier to to connect into that. Yeah, it gives everything a framework to work within, so that's why, why the Pagan Wheel of the Year is so enjoyable as well. And I do like how that we got that, like I said, the, the Pagan Wheel of the Year is actually two calendars smashed together. Yeah. I was looking at it before to try and get my, some of my details straight before I came into this one, and it was funny that the people that actually were part of that revival in the 50s, one of them wanted to use one, the other one wanted to use the other, and putting them both together was the compromise so they stopped squabbling. Yeah. <laughs> it, was a great, it was a great way to have more festivals as well, because it gives you eight points around the year three of them overlap with culturally christian um whitewashing of culture so it all does hook up again you know it kind of works and it's always fun having a bonfire yeah and it gives you a holiday about every six weeks which you know more celebration is better you know can't go wrong um it is a bit of a mess when you when you really look at it because it's those two calendars shoved together and some of them like when they were filling in the blanks of lost culture gets a bit weird so uh, mabon is yeah. based on like this god that's from from a Furian myth, and the second you see a Furian myth, it's the bloody Normans again, so it can't be old native stuff. Yep, yep. And he's, when you actually look at his story, putting it in the fall seems like an interesting choice. The choice was they had seven out of eight done already and had one left over. Yeah, <laughs> have to fill this blank space. Let's let's put this in here. Yeah, um, there and there's a couple holidays that are a bit of a duplicate because of that because you you have the two calendars from kind of two different zones, two different areas. So we kind of get to celebrate the beginning of spring twice and yeah. It vaguely works because, like, one is like the start of new growth and new life, and the other one is when it stops being bloody winter. So yeah. it does have a bit of wobble on there. And then, like, when you've got free harvest festivals, there are free harvests, so it vaguely works. But again, I think we're just being dragged along by the lore of a good narrative again. Yeah, for sure. And I'm not criticizing it. I, I do think it's really good fun, and it's a good system, and obviously works for a lot of people. And very importantly, it's given people a framework to look to the past. Yeah, because it's so easy to just kind of limp along on a default and then like you'll get a baby pagan go into one of the new age stores and they'll pick up a book and they'll go hang on and that'll set them off looking in the right direction and we're going to get the most infuriating thing about the f word where it's a great way of turning people around and pointing them in the right direction through the wrong premise <laughs> yeah yeah well and the other problem with the f word in that that sense is that there's so much bad information out there <laughs> So much. again, I, I remember being in college. Like, this is just a vague like knock on from like the White Wolf World of Darkness, yeah. which the Dresden Files was originally heavily um, situated within. And I don't want to call Jim Butcher problematic because I like his books, so that's it. Purely getting a free pass because I enjoy the Dresden Files, not because there's nothing problematic there. Like um, when he used the real word of a skinwalker in one of his books, and it's just oh, why have you done this? But that aside, I remember being in college, and this is a while ago now because I'm turning into a dinosaur. But yeah. I remember people. Getting 
getting really hyped up talking about different kinds of vampires. And it turned out to be vampire the masquerade vampire clowns. And it's, that's <laughs> not different kind of vampires. You've almost got little bits of it. And I can go, oh, what? You mean this was this? And it, oh, there's a Stragoi and there's real myth, which is great. But when you're talking about a RPG source book, like it's actually giving you real information, you've gone a little wrong. Yeah, yeah. Well, and we definitely see that with the, the F word as well. Um, changeling is where that tends to come in. Yeah, Changeling the Dreamer and how they like introduced from Orions. And it's just... They needed a bad guy and kind of went, yeah, this is all one thing. Yeah, the, the number of times online I've run across people talking about the Unseelie code, which was invented for the game. I mean, in the game, glamour is something that you basically use or gain in different circumstances. Um, it's it's part of the game mechanic. And so it's mentioned in the Unseelie code in that context, really. And people will, will reference it as if it was not a game thing, as if they were talking about actual, like, this is what the Unseelie court is like, and this is their real motto in whatever context and it's like well no that's you're literally quoting white wolf right now you know yeah that's definitely wrong i do find it interesting looking at like the fomori in the tales as like the the old monsters that came before the um she that came before people because like there's a lot of interesting stuff going on with celtic mythology there it's interesting to go okay the knuckle of these are really horrible monster is that from orion and then the knuckle of these also been borrowed by norse culture because it was cool and therefore it traveled and there's loads yeah. of interesting lines to draw across but you've got to wonder like again like you say you'll go onto a forum and people are talking about the unseely code it's like get out of here no (laughs) yeah which is where that that post on twitter kind of came from is just that frustration sometimes with being in discussions where people are talking about basically quoting from you know changing the lost or what have you and it's like that's an rpg source book not a source of folklore yeah artistic license has been taken i think a lot of people make the mistake of assuming because the game is based loosely on folklore that it's the same thing and it's it's not sometimes it's just the name it's that much it's the name <laughs> okay i i want to barge in here so i as a serb uh, know that i should be offended of the use of a vampire because it's a serbian words but i don't care <laughs> Uh, I wanted to mention this. So when Luke brought up that we are referring to something otherworldly entities that are not human um, and using descriptive terms, we do this a lot with people as well. The way we refer to other nations and cultures are oftentimes not the same words that those nations and cultures used to refer to themselves. So unless they're the English, because the English hate the English more than anyone else. <laughs> An example I have is, let's say Germans. They refer to themselves as Deutsch. We refer all to them as Germans, Germany. But here's something very interesting and very problematic. In Serbian, we refer to them as Njemci. And Njem, the word Njem, means mute. So essentially, yeah, mute people, people whose language we cannot understand. And we call their country Njemačka, which means lands of the mutes. (laughs) Sorry, I shouldn't laugh. (laughs) It's fascinating, though. It is fun to unpack this stuff rather than take it for granted. Yeah. Oh, for sure. And I, you know, I think these are important conversations to have because it's so easy for people to just take things for granted and not look into, you know, what words mean or where they're coming from or, you know, the context that they're supposed to be used in originally. We can learn so much from etymological discussion as well. It really is interesting to dig down into. But again, it's a case of people taking stuff for granted. Like, the world really is wondrous on 
on every level and we just want to get through the work day and go to sleep at the end of it there is more going on there that we can dig down into and look at yeah well and like even what we were talking about uh, a little while ago with you know what does the f word actually mean you know what is the origin of it how do we use it? Um, I think those are all good things to get people thinking about, you know, instead of just using the word and not questioning it in any way. Okay, guys. Well, this was a wonderful geek out. <laughs> I did not expect this, especially Luke. You you were kind of worried like, oh, I'm going to be the punching bag here. But I think you contributed quite a lot here. Yeah, this is a great conversation. Yeah, it's a lot of fun. I knew that going into this that Morgan had a lot more specialized info than me. But I also know that I'm a really erratic weirdo who's like gone. I go broad more than deep. So I usually have some tidbits to chuck in. Well, erratic weirdos are my favorite kind so it, it was a good conversation okay guys so uh, morgan can you share with the listeners where they can find you and plug anything you have uh, well sadly you can find me everywhere on social media uh, <laughs> as luke is well aware <laughs> of now <laughs> yeah i'm not proud of that but yeah, pretty much twitter facebook instagram mastodon and it's all under morgan daimler fairly straightforward and uh as we might have mentioned earlier i can't remember now i just had a book come out 21st century fairy which is looking at modern fairy beliefs and also the way that some modern views kind of differ from older beliefs and views and, and a little bit of how that happened so that just came out uh, last week and by the time i put this episode out your new newest future book will be much closer than 21st century fairy so if you can plug that one as well sure i have a novel coming out uh the end of may called into shadow it's high fantasy i'm actually super excited about that one i write fiction for fun i wrote non-fiction for paying bills uh so i'm excited to have some fiction coming out and then i have uh pagan portals freya coming out in july which is uh just a short introductory book about the goddess freya nice and uh, luke can you share with the listeners where they can find you and what kind of stuff you have going on we'll do but one sec first of all i'm very excited to start adding those books from Morgan to my pile by the bed that's threatening to topple over and crush me because I'm not reading the to read pile they do sound great as for me I'm on lukelaw.com um, that's where my transcript scripts are so you can see all my horrible typos and blame me for being wrong my podcast is everywhere you can find podcasts which is again Luke Law I also work on the Ghost Story Guys podcast as a researcher that's more about paranormal encounters and people's stories whereas Luke Law is me going hey this folklore is awesome look at how weird it is that's awesome now, there'll be too late for him to come join me but like in about two weeks i'm at the alameda international film festival because um a film i help work on is doing really well on the festival circuit i really do turn up everywhere like a bad penny socials again mostly on facebook and twitter and instagram you'll find me around and about and i do know that you work with the film industry with you know horror and stuff like that but the film you're referring to is it the like drama film it has nothing to do with folklore or horror yeah that's just the people that i regularly collaborate with betraying me like they, they skip me on a horror project and got me on the gritty indie drama but i now can't complain because we've got 30 awards on the festival circuit and counting so it's a great way to network and open doors yeah as as morgan said like she does non-fiction to pay the bills so you do uh, gritty dramas to pay the bills <laughs> it's all a process it's great whatever like you're doing something that's related to what you love that isn't quite what you love and you're just getting your hands dirty you're helping other people you're learning you're growing and when you come back to your what you want to focus on you're just better at it it's definitely worth just getting involved with the communities that you want to be a part of yes for exactly sure. well thank you guys again for joining me today i'm hoping that uh, the listeners could also be finding you on my show more and more <laughs> both of you are becoming regulars of the show yeah it's a great show it's always fun to come on and talk the most random stuff about like Pokemon. Like, Morgan, you've been doing serious um, F-word stuff. I was on going, Pokemon, they're kind of cool and sometimes based on folklore. <laughs> yes. Yeah, 
I, I'm going to make sure I listen to that one, actually, because I, I find Pokemon fascinating for that reason. Yes, exactly. And uh, we have a new type in Pokemon, which is the F word. So I think you would find it very interesting how that has been incorporated as a game type within the Pokemon world. I'd definitely be interested, yeah. Okay, well, uh, until next time, guys, everything is in the uh, episode description. Go grab Morgan Daimler's newest book, 21st Century Fairy, and look out for the new uh, fiction book what was it called into shadow <laughs> into shadow yes you've been tweeting about it for a, quite a long time now and um until next time bye bye